welcome to Partisan Gardens. We can't wait any longer. For a tech breakthrough, climate apocalypse, the revolution, or a reform of the USDA loan system. On Partisan Gardens, we know climate catastrophe is here, and it's our food system's dead end. Here we see sustainable fine dining and ecological destruction, hunger and obesity, extreme wealth and immense poverty. We must be frank about reality to reckon with our options. We must choose sides and become partisans of a new way to live and grow food. This alternative path is already under construction. Through the experiments and struggles of food service and agricultural workers, we are figuring out how to create food systems that will nourish a livable world for us all. Partisan Gardens will feature stories from kitchen staff, new small farmers, undocumented slaughterhouse organizers, agroecology researchers, black farming cooperatives, urban gardeners, indigenous land stewards, permaculturists, and countless others exploring this field of experimentation. Let those of us who refuse to wait proceed together. The current food system has failed. And we are on the side of nourishment and care. In this episode of Partisan Gardens, we share a conversation between Ryan Richardson, a writer and activist born and raised in the Appalachian Mountains, and Stephen Stoll. Stoll teaches at Fordham University and is the author of Ramp Hollow, a celebrated agrarian history of Appalachia. Stoll seeks to revive the memory of agrarian life and its destruction through capitalist enclosure. Emphasizing the commons and the ecological dimension of survival in the mountains, he wrangles in Ramp Hollow with the complex legacy of the colonial expulsion of the indigenous peoples of the mountains, as well as ways in which the mountain people's autonomy was co-opted by the coal companies. Stoll's notion of the captured garden, in which agrarian subsistence was used by employers to maintain low wages, offers an important warning to contemporary advocates of food sovereignty. Indeed, the struggles of the Appalachian people offer a range of lessons for contemporary food politics, not least the dangers of capture, but also the possibility to carve out forms of collective subsistence that instead grow autonomy. At the end of their conversation, Richardson and Stoll reflect on this potential via Los Angeles's South Central Farm, an urban oasis maintained by hundreds of immigrant farmers that functioned as an uncaptured garden. Here they are. Good afternoon, Stephen. Welcome to Partisan Gardens. We appreciate you joining us here today, and we're very excited to talk about your recent book, Ramp Hollow. Now, in this wonderful history, you present a wide-ranging account of the Southern Appalachian Mountains. It combines social and political history with a strong emphasis on material and environmental questions. What led you to this topic, and how does it connect to some of your prior research? Well, first of all, a lot of people ask me if I have a personal connection or relationship to the region. So many people who study it, write about it, advocate for its people, have a personal connection. They're from there, right? But I do not. And for me, it was really that as a historian of the United States, I just didn't understand it. It was always there. It was the frontier of Daniel Boone and David Crockett. It was like the first American frontier. 
And then, and then it comes back in coal mining and then it just, in between it's, there's nothing. And after that it disappears. And so it, it, there just seemed to be more of a story to me. I also became interested in the idea of peasants and peasantry, agrarians, and was looking for a way to write about them. Obviously there's American Indians and that's a gigantic subject, but I was wondering if there was a, a regional way for me to get into these subjects and try to understand peasant economy in the United States, which a lot of people, a lot of Americans say, oh, there were never any peasants here. That's a European idea. How could I find a, a region or a subject to write about this and explain these ideas to Americans in a way that would also teach me something? And there it was, there was Appalachia. And then there was the Whiskey Rebellion. I, I'd always had this sense that it took place in the Southern mountains. It also is disconnected from the rest of that story. And I wanted to see if I could connect it. But I guess the real historical question to me, the one that I always kept in mind is, how did Daniel Boone become hillbilly? And that's just like a, there's like a 30, 40 year period between those kinds of stories. And I was just completely intrigued, what happened? And so it's not a personal connection whatsoever. Um, and I'm very humbled at the knowledge of people who come from the region and, and listen to them and spoke to them interview them whenever I possibly could. Absolutely. And one of the remarkable things about your book is how detailed it is. You present deeds and letters, newspaper articles, paintings, photographs, surveys, maps, showing how what we think of as Appalachia was a historical construction. It happened over time. Particular choices were made, particular events happened. So you're telling a very specific regional story, but at the same time, you're always taking care in the book to point out broader features of the world system, right? And that is to say, capitalism. So what do you think makes the Southern Highlands such a rich study of both the particular place that they are, but also as a way to tell in broad strokes what capitalism is and does and how it's historically become the dominant mode of production on this planet. So let me say something about the region, Appalachia or Appalachia, and then, and then capitalism kind of separately. The first thing that anyone has to contend with is that in some ways Appalachia doesn't really exist. Uh, if you would go up to anybody there in the 1830s, uh, Cherokee in Northern Georgia, uh, runaway slaves uh, you know, in the mountains of Virginia, um, you know, white Scots-Irish family in, uh, you know, in Tennessee and say, hey, you're from Appalachia. They, they may not know what you're talking about. They may talk about their county or, or their state perhaps, but a region like that was really constructed by people from the outside. It then became a regional identity for people on the inside, but I don't think that was really the case until about the 20th century. So it, it really was kind of constructed by people who said, there is this significant sub-region of the United States at a higher elevation. And they began to talk about it in this way, using a word that itself is incredibly obscure, that had always been kind of part of American lore, that had always sort of referred to the mountains, that really goes back to a, a, a failed Spanish expedition uh, of the 17th century, the Cabeza de Vaca um, expedition, which became known as that, and a map he came back to Spain with. It's really kind of a, of a mysterious story. It's kind of perfect for the region that no one really knows what the word means or where it came from. And it became 
attached to it. But it became defined historically, I would argue, because it has a distinctive history in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. And that's where it begins to be defined by capitalism. And that is that no one paid much attention to it when people there lived up in the mountains, essentially squatting on land that, that didn't belong to them, but, but which they claimed did belong to them, writing their own deeds uh, in the shadow of larger official deeds like George Washington's deeds. But when coal was discovered during the Civil War, and people knew it was there before the Civil War, but when big seams of coal were discovered by some of the cartographers working especially for the Confederacy during the war, afterwards they began saying that there was a kind of convergence between the steam engine and its proliferation throughout the United States and the fact that there were these gigantic deposits of coal in this region and nobody was doing anything with it. And that is basically a formula for development or disaster, depending on your point of view, where some of these very same people essentially began to reconstruct the region and its people there as being essentially just perfect subject to be taken over and brought into the industrial world by railroads, corporations, seizing hold of land, et cetera, et cetera. So that coal was already a major part of the Atlantic world. There's coal in, in England and in Britain, and there were coal-powered factories by the end of the, you know, by the middle of the, the 19th century, as Andreas Malm tells that remarkable story in his book, Fossil Capital. And in the United States, Appalachia became that region as well, essentially seized because of this weird mineral that burns very hot and makes coal-powered uh, steam engines so efficient. So the Industrial Revolution in the United States needed this source. And here it was in the possession of people who, you know, they began to say, couldn't do anything with it, didn't understand what they were sitting on top of. And then you could do anything with them because they were ignorant and they were simple. And then they could be used as the very labor force for pulling that coal out of the ground. So let's jump a little bit back in time before the arrival of the railroads, the mines, and the mills. Let's try for our listeners to describe one of these Southern Appalachian Highland homesteads, what life would have been like. And we're probably talking the late 18th and early to mid 19th centuries, probably the heyday of what you call this agrarian form of life. What were their subsistence practices? How did they get by? What was the landscape itself like at that time before the uh, arrival of industrial capital? The key thing to know about any agrarian economy is that it requires uh, something that is called an ecological base. It requires a huge amount of unowned, flexible, shared commons that people can remove from using very minimum labor and no money at all. There is no fishing village without a fishery. And there is no agrarian landscape without a big run of woods that provides and provides and provides all manner of food and commodities for the taking only for the labor expended on it. And this is something that there's all kinds of myths and misunderstandings 
about the people who live in this way. And capitalism is part of this because in many ways, part of its power is that it tends to erase our understanding and our memory of anything that competed with it or that existed prior to it. So we don't have a good understanding. I found, I found it really difficult to put into words exactly how agrarian societies function, even though it's the way that most of the people who have ever lived, lived. Because it's almost like we, we have, are the language we have for it is lost. And when we think about the American farm in the 20th century, and you think about the barnyard, you know, there's the house and there's the barnyard and there's the dairy, and then there's fields and maybe there's a garden and that's it, there's your farm. But nobody thought about a farm like that. A farm received a constant subsidy from the larger landscape or it could not function. You didn't internalize every single function. You didn't feed all of your animals by growing all of their feed. That's a, that's a distinctly 20th century idea. So the first answer to your question is the agrarian homestead in the, in the hills, in, in the mountains, was a farmhouse and a garden and perhaps some fields that would grow something like rye or corn. But most of what was considered the farm, the people who lived there didn't own it all. It was a big run of woods where they would graze their animals, hunt, for all kinds of meat that they were that they stored on the hoof, right? They did not own, they did not take care of, and a place for foraging for all kinds of spring and summer foods that were beloved, that were cherished, like ramps. Ramps are an onion, right? For your listeners who don't know what a ramp is, it is not a platform between two uneven surfaces. <laughs> Although that is an interesting connection to the word, and who knows, because the funny thing about a ramp is that that food gets you between spring and summer. I actually, rampen in German doesn't really mean ramp, but the coalescence is really interesting because it actually does form a bridge between the spring when you have no more summer stores and the summer when your uh, garden crops begin to come in and you can eat from your garden. A ramp is actually a kind of a ramp. It's also known as a bear onion. It has all kinds of other associations with wildness. The point is, again, back to your question, is that that larger landscape was absolutely essential for people living, deriving commodities. You could take things out of the woods and sell them. For instance, you graze your, your cattle in the woods. They grow to whatever they grow to, and then you sell the cattle. What have you invested in the cattle in the form of money or labor? almost nothing. So the homestead depended on that. So there was gardens, there was fields, and there was the forest. And they were all interrelated together when it came to household labor. And again, we should keep in mind, this is labor performed by a household, right? So it's probably a husband and under probably his control are a wife and kids. And they're performing this reproductive labor together. Yes, exactly. One thing people warn me about and like to, to tell me about is, well, don't, don't romanticize this world. Don't, don't, you know, hold it up as somehow a model. And I don't. And when you begin talking about the household and the dominant male in the household, certainly any notion of romanticism vanishes because these were very difficult kinds of organizations to live under. And that dominant male 
there could be an awful lot of abuse. There's an awful lot of power that is inherent in this. The household was a labor system in which one was bound to that adult male, but as a means of reproduction, it was also intended to take the young and essentially send them out so that they could form their own households. The purpose and the success of the household was its reproduction itself. That meant the formation of new households, which is how settler societies basically explode because they have a lot of kids and they all need farms. And so that's right, exactly. It was a labor system. The people in a household are usually related. They don't have to all necessarily be related, but they pool their resources. They pull themselves together one way or another and all of their labor becomes part of the survival of everybody else. And yes, the household is the basic link. However, these households were also linked together into larger groups, their kin groups. That is, there were so many people, so many children, and the farms were relatively close together that everybody was basically related and they pooled their resources. They shared things, shared labor, shared land. The fact that they were distributed as separate households in some ways was an optical illusion that an outsider would see all of these separate farms, but wouldn't see the relationships between them and the extent to which they relied on each other. So when you look at the manuscript census, you get household after household after household, all with the name Belcher, 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 right? All the same names. And that which you can't see unless you reconstruct who married whom, which deeds go to which people, you can't see the fact that in fact, they would have been really closely related and relied on each other. And that challenges what might be our own mistaken conception of what self-sufficiency means. Because as you point out in the book, self-sufficiency of the household is not the autarkic produce everything by ourselves for our own use. It's actually self-sufficiency is a much broader concept about the relationships between kin and community. I think that's exactly right. Exactly right. And, and that, that is part of the optical illusion and this notion that how even today, the notion that these households are, are, are discrete in some ways, we are much more isolated socially and economically from the people around us than they ever were. So yes, the kin group is itself an economic organization, sometimes even led by a group of, of elders who, who pulled them together. And uh, you never did things on your own. You never raised a house on your own. You never had to survive a winter entirely on your own. And they were a division of labor where you know, different people could provide different functions. Of course, people didn't have to leave. You know, you had to go into the next county, but there you would basically be part of the construction of another king group. The Hatfield and McCoy feud, which we don't have to talk about in its, in its detail necessarily, but what it reveals, and there's been a good deal of research about it and about the feud, but what it shows in an economic sense is just the extent of interrelation between the Hatfields and the McCoys, in fact, but also the size and the scale of these families themselves and the extent to which they function together economically. One of the other 
maybe misconceptions we have is that households would barter but not sell or that this was necessarily a pre-capitalist mode of life in the southern highlands and i think Rampala really shows the complexity of these relationships and oftentimes their ambiguities and contradictions. Would you tell us a little bit about the distinction between the market versus capitalism as a, a structural system and how Southern Appalachian families engaged in market practices? I'm glad you asked that question. Another major mythology in American history among Americans in general is the relationship between capitalism and the market. For many people, they're just the same thing. Everyone knows where capitalism came from and its roots in 17th century Britain and England in particular, but the market in exchanging things, that's, what is that, as old as language? Is that, is that as old as, as hominids? We don't know. It long, long predates capitalism. So you might say that it is a necessary precondition but in no way a sufficient one in order for there to be capitalism. So that the people of the mountains engaged in robust and constant market exchange, though they could not be called capitalists by and large. Yeah, barter gets a bad, a bad name. Barter is often seen as a stage in the development of a sophisticated money-oriented economy, when in fact money came first, Barter came along with money and market exchange and then capitalism came even later uh, in the sense that barter is in fact a money exchange where the money is not present. And that sounds very funny to people. And it's like, what? Can you explain that? You really can't exchange two completely different things. You can't exchange uh, boots and chickens. Nobody knows how many boots equal a chicken. No one knows how many chicken equals a boot. They're just completely incommensurate different things. But they both require a certain amount of labor and resources in order to produce them. So the calculation that goes on in the mind of the producer is, how long did it take me to do this and what is my labor worth? That is what gets translated into money. And then those values get exchanged between chickens and boots. In other words, chickens and boots are not exchanged a certain sum of money represented in the chickens and the boots is what actually gets exchanged, even if there's no money present. What frustrates people and the reason why barter is considered to be primitive or savage is that there's no profit in a barter exchange. It is inherently an exchange of equal values so that there's no way to buy low and sell high. It really is a way to exchange things based on need and not profitability, which is one reason why Alexander Hamilton didn't consider barter exchanges to be fully modern or productive of the kind of value that he thought was essential in the new United States. You know, corporations barter, they, they swap things all the time, they trade things. There's nothing uh, ancient or people do it all the time. There's marketplaces and exchanges on the internet where you can swap things with people. It's kind of an obvious thing to do and it hasn't gone away and it's not a stage. And it's probably not going away. Yeah, right, it's not going away, no.
Well, I'm glad you brought up the figure of Alexander Hamilton. And I'm also glad you brought up, Stephen, the idea of what are some necessary preconditions for capitalism to arise as a world economic system. So one of the big stories about Appalachia is the land itself and who owns it and who uses it. Would you tell us a little bit about the history of the commons, both in their historical existence in England, and then how the functional commons worked in Appalachia before they were slowly dismantled? Another great and abiding myth of the United States and Appalachia in general is that there is such a thing as this open frontier where individuals go and they, and they stake their claim and they, and they take their own land and they, and they become owners of private property kind of you know, by fiat and by their own declaration. Appalachia, the moment that it essentially was created from the very end of the revolution or rather the French and Indian War when Britain essentially owned everything from the Atlantic all the way to the Mississippi River, it was immediately parceled out among very powerful and large landowners. It immediately became private property at the highest level. And that is it was seized essentially from American Indians without warfare, but just kind of on the map and granted to people like George Washington in gigantic chunks. To hold that off for a second and then to, to go to England, the reason why the connection between this process and the origins of capitalism, to get at your question, is that capitalism requires a means of production in order for people to produce a certain kind of value, which we call surplus value that becomes profit. Well, the first means of production wasn't a factory. The first means of production was the means of production for absolutely everything, every commodity, every source of food, every source of fiber, it's land. So without going into the entire history of capitalism, in the 17th century, lords began to become extremely frustrated by the power that peasants had over them in, say, coercing certain wages from them. And they began to get together and they, and they began to say, look, what if we simply extinguish all of these old medieval rights to land and collected all of these rights in a single bundle, which they called a lodial tenure, and basically held on to it individually and said that instead of a community or a village or a group of people having rights to land, we have all the rights to the land. All those rights we're going to collect together. And then we get to set the terms for how land is used. No one else is going to own this land. We're going to call it ownership. We're going to hire everybody back as laborers and have complete control. And that's what they did. With the help of parliament, they created what we know as private property. It was very few people who had it at first. It was despised, hated. It was even fought over by arms. And it didn't come to the United States all at once or in one chunk or the, the Puritans didn't come here wanting to seize land as private property. In fact, in my town here of Guilford, there is a, a compact very much like the Plymouth Compact, which says that we all pledge ourselves to each other, to help each other. We, we form a single plantation. What is that about, a single plantation? Basically, they were a commons and they uh, produced food and saw themselves together as commoners and as essentially working land in common. Uh, one historian even has asserted that we can understand the British colonial project as a dispossession of Indians by commons. So the commons was something that certainly survived and thrived 
in North America among English speaking, French speaking and Spanish speaking colonizers for quite some time. Now, by the time we get to George Washington, he really was granted all this land in Appalachia. He really was given it exclusively and it was his private property. But the people who then found their way up to those mountains, those Scots-Irish, Finnish, other Scandinavians who found their way up there and established their households, they knew that people like George Washington and many, many others who received vast grants of land from the colony and then the state of Virginia, they knew that this land was owned. They just didn't care. And they lived on it, wrote their own deeds to the land that they occupied, and they began to develop their own claim to land within these gigantic land grants. They could do this, why? Because George Washington never set foot there. He never was going to establish a plantation there. He never was going to move there. And they developed a kind of functional commons. I call it functional because in a de facto sense, in a de jure sense, they did not own the land, but they developed a right to it that even courts recognized because they lived on it, farmed it, hunted on it, and that matters in English common law it matters that you would use a piece of land whereas an absentee owner made no use of it. So they in fact developed real rights to that land. Some of them even acquired title down the line. They even acquired title to some of that land uh, through adverse possession. Here's what I wanna say. It is a complicated story. It has to do with enclosure just like in England and the creation of capital from the means of production. But that's not the only part of the story. The commons survives in the form of this peasant culture into the 19th century in which people treated this land as commons, even though it was private property and oddly enough, ended up acquiring private property from common usage. There's no simple way to understand it and there is no kind of set narrative that we have received that's going to help us to understand it. And that's what I tried to convey, is the complexity of it, which makes it much more interesting and really much more democratic as a story. Maybe this is unfair to him, but one of the, uh, let's say, anti-democratic forces in the story is Mr. Alexander Hamilton and the way that his nation building ideas went to really insert the power of governing between land and labor. Could you tell us about how the Whiskey Rebellion functioned in the kind of enclosure and taxation and contesting claims about the Appalachian Highlands? Hamilton was a genius you can't help but admire him. He was the most talented political economist in North America during his lifetime. And he in many ways invented the United States by looking at how nation states and even city states functioned in Europe at the time. And the thing that Hamilton feared the most was an idea that there would be a distant portion, a kind of 
faraway province of the United States that would not be governed or governable by the United States. The thing that, that kept him up at night <laughs> is that there would be people in Western Pennsylvania, all right? Like that was really far away, but it was at the time. And they essentially would be able to found their own Republic. And he had some reason to fear this. There was some legitimate reason to fear that the West could break apart, that it could not in fact be governed as someone like Madison had hoped that it could by a central government you know, on the coast in, in, in the capital city. What Hamilton said was every square inch of the United States had to be governed by the constitution in exactly the same way. So the question is logistically, well, how do you do that? How could you possibly bring that about when people were living in log cabins on a frontier? And his solution was not political, it was economic. Well, it was institutional and it was economic. So he came up with this idea of subordinate institutions. And we know it is like frontier forts or the post office or national parks, units of the federal government that would exist all over the place but all of them would be subordinate to the authority of the federal government, but they would be outposts in these far away areas. But even more dramatic and, and, and kind of bolder for his own time was the idea that if the United States formed a single economy, then it would therefore form a single polity. His solution for that, I believe, and my argument is, was taxation. And it works like this. If I insist that you pay a tax, then you have to get the money to pay that tax. And in order to get the money to pay that tax, you have to produce a commodity and sell it. Selling it links you to people all over the country. It provides you with money, which you then pay to the center, linking you, tying you to the federal government. He saw it as the creation, not just of a national economy, but in many ways of the United States itself. None of this is in the Constitution, but it's in the Federalist, which means that he was linking it to the Constitution at the time that he was arguing for it, even though it's not really there except that one sentence, Congress should have, in his words, the unqualified power of taxation, unqualified. This is what the revolution was fought over, was the unqualified power of taxation of, of George III. See, he was playing with fire, but he was making the argument, you don't understand. We want to be the same kind of empire. Even if we treat our provinces as that empire, we need to bind them to the center and taxation is the way to do that. It was a very dangerous argument to make. Amazingly, he actually tried to do it. <laughs> he decided to levy a whiskey tax and you know, I think for generations of American historians, it was like, well, people produce whiskey and, and, and it was like, a, you know, it was like a luxury item. And he decided to tax this thing that nobody really needed as a way of just deriving an income for the United States. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Number one, whiskey was not a luxury item. It was unbelievably important and even essential. It was basically money itself. Because when you turn rye into whiskey, you take something that's perishable and you turn it into something that is not perishable. 
You turn it into something that can actually hold on to its value. So in the mountains, as part of that household economy, whiskey itself was used as money because like gold, it didn't perish. Hamilton understood this. He also, he understood its value for the people in the mountains. And secondly, it was not produced everywhere. You know what was? Beer, he could have taxed beer, he didn't tax beer. He could have taxed all kinds of other sorts of things, buildings, he could have taxed slave sales. He did not. My argument was he was going after the people of the mountains. He didn't want them to, to produce this for subsistence means. The tax itself was not a tax on the sale of the whiskey. It was not a sales tax. It was a production tax. Everyone, listeners should understand that the whiskey tax was a tax on the still, on the size and the product of the still you were taxed for producing it. So if you were producing it for your own consumption, you still had to pay the tax. By the way, that was modified. And if your still was small enough, you didn't actually have to. But a still of a decent size had to pay a tax before the stuff was even sold. Hamilton knew that would drive you to sell it for money because you had to pay the tax. The problem for him was the people would not put up with it. They rebelled against it. They said, no, you can't do this. It's like taxing flour. It's like taxing bacon. You can't take something from us that's this important. It's the thing that produces all of the value that we use to buy all the other things that we love to buy. Going back to your market question, these people were connected to larger markets through money. They loved books. They loved fine textiles. They bought tools like kettles and hammers, which they didn't make themselves. They bought dishes with George Washington's picture on them, which was actually kind of a funky thing. It, they, they were part of a consumer culture. It was like, you know, wearing some kind of a t-shirt. They bought stuff. And by taxing them, he was taking away the money that tied them to the rest of the world and sending that to the treasury. And they let him know that it was not acceptable. They attacked his army, attacked it by throwing like watermelons at it. They blasted holes in the road so that the army could not advance. They tarred and feathered the tax collectors, which is a very serious thing. You know, you can die from it. And they opened fire on the tax collectors' houses without actually killing any, any tax collector, by the way. People would say to me, what do you like this? Are you some kind of an anti-tax Republican and, and it's no, I'm, I'm not, I really wasn't making a statement as to the justice of taxation. But what I was saying is why would he choose to tax these people who were the least able to pay a tax when there were so many other people who were so much more able to pay a tax? It was like taxing the poor instead of the rich. That's what he chose to do as a kind of social engineering to bind them to the United States. And I do take exception to that. And I do object to that. So that's a way of understanding him. So Stephen, thank you for that incredible story. And unfortunately, you know, a story I think is underknown among people today. But if that's one piece of the background of binding the Southern Appalachian Mountaineer to the project of the United States, then another more well-known aspect of that historical dispossession 
is the industrialization of the mountains. That's the mapping projects, the railroads, the timber mills, and the coal mines, and today you can add the fracking facilities. Would you tell us briefly about the origins and some of the consequences of that tremendous rapid and destructive process of industrialization, the extraction of labor and resources. One of the things that I, I needed to figure out and to demonstrate was that it was the relationship between the George Washington landowners and the, and the people who acquired the land later. And what do you know, it, it was in fact related. That when coal was discovered, a new generation basically dusted off those big deeds and said, wait a minute, all of this land is already in private hands. All we have to do is break it up and buy it and sell it in a marketplace that has nothing to do with the people who actually live there. Because after all, if you have a deed that basically says that someone owns the land from the Ohio River all the way to the fall line of, of the mountains themselves and all the way from, you know, the border with Kentucky all the way. If you have a piece of land like that, you can dice it up into a small into small pieces. And that's what they did. Basically, this was a, a new generation of landowner, but they didn't want to be absentee landowners. They needed to undertake the active industrial exploitation and extraction in order to make their money off of it. In the way where, where thousands of people who were living on that land. And like I said before, they were writing their own deeds and trading their own deeds so that you have this double land, this dual system of legal ownership. And courts had to basically sort it out. But the process was that the mountain households had to be dispossessed. They had to be one way or another, either bought out, ejected, outsmarted, the use of the courts. There were a number of different tools. They had to be taken off of that land so that it could be turned into land that where the coal and the lumber could be extracted from it. But here too, it is actually a complicated story. For example, one way to do it was to get a hold of the timber rights and to destroy the forest. Now, as I said before, you don't have an agrarian society if you don't have an ecological base. So if you destroy the ecological base, by taking away the forest, the people there simply can't live. So you could dispossess people by destroying their wherewithal to exist as agrarians. And that was one way of doing it. Almost the entire Appalachian forest at one time or another was turned into lumber. I'm talking billions of board feet of, of lumber. And the people there, they needed money because remember, these households, money was an attribute. They could exist without it, but they didn't want to. And so sometimes the young man ended up going to work for the lumber companies themselves. And then there were the coal mines. There weren't coal mines in every county. It was something like 25 to 30% of Appalachian counties uh, have coal. But where coal existed, the young man would go down from the, the cabin on the ridge in the hollow and go to work and come back. But in time, the family ended up moving into the coal camp because certain promises were made. And sometimes the wages seemed good. But once they got into the coal camp, a kind of a trap door was slammed shut. And once they were captive, 
the owners could basically pay them any small amount. Um, there's a novel that I, I use a number of novels in the book and in one of them, a family moves into a coal camp and says, well, we're only here because we want to make enough money to then go back up and buy back our land from the coal companies and live again up on the ridge. We're only going to be here for six months. And the neighbor said, yeah, we said that too. We've been here for six years. You're never leaving. You're, you're never going anywhere. And that is, that is what happened. But it is that there were various ways in which they lost their land. But once they did begin to turn over and rely on wages and it's, instead of the ecological base, there really was no turning back. There was no way for them to take the money that they, that they gained in sales or paid in wages and buy their way back to the old autonomy that they once had. So there's two points here I really want to pull out for our listeners. The first, I think, is one of the saddest and most tragic parts of this story that you're telling, is that with when faced with no other way to get by, workers and their families moved from the cabins into the coal towns, and they became employed in their own dispossession by mining the coal that polluted their lungs and the streams, and by clear-cutting the forests, which had previously provided the abundance to their families and underlay their entire agrarian existence. That to me is the terrible kernel of this story. And then what you've just said about that transition from a subsistence way of life to earning a wage is also in the macro sense, the story of your book and the story in a sense of global capitalism. It's a huge transformative shift in what it means to be alive, to live on the land, to make a livelihood. When you go from raising, growing, and exchanging your own food and other products to earning a wage and spending your money or your scrip in a company store, it's a huge transformation in how the world works. Absolutely, it is. And when people look at that process in a kind of an unabashedly positive way, it's often because the earning of that wage is, is sufficient and more than sufficient for them to live a very comfortable way of life. And so they're, they're inclined to see it as progress. What's remarkable is how our society has basically projected that notion of progress down to people who uh, benefit far less from it and by it, and to tell them that, that they are themselves are, are better off even though there's enormous insecurity, uh, which breeds all kinds of problems that we're seeing today, needless to say, that, uh, that I think is in fact related to the way in which people don't have control over their own material lives. Look, it's not a matter of going back to the Middle Ages and saying that peasants there were just universally happy, but it's also the case that they did have certain advantages and certain kinds of securities that we lack today. And uh, I think it only makes sense to to say that. Appalachian households in the late 18th into the 19th century, they had a lot of problems and life could be difficult for them, but they also had tremendous abundance and with not a lot of labor and they had a kind of freedom that is quite elusive to us today. 
Uh, I think it, it, if it's a mistake to romanticize them, it's very much a mistake to take capitalism as a given, as something that is uh, represents any kind of universal human progress, and certainly that uh, that we all benefit from when when we don't. Stephen, I want to hone in on one of I think the central images of your book, and that's the idea of the captured garden. And this, to me, I think will be wonderful for the listeners to think through this kind of a thought experiment, almost, about the relationship between subsistence and capitalism. And it also gives us a vision of not just the survival of subsistence practices, but also the ways they served as sites and modes of resistance for Appalachian people to the exploitation and disposition they were facing. Could you tell us what the captured garden is? Well, gardens are a great symbol of autonomy and, and independence where you people would produce often heirloom foods uh, to this day and people cherish their gardens. They have the satisfaction of producing food on their own. I have a garden and I'm not the best gardener. <laughs> In fact, I'm really pretty lousy as a gardener, but I, I'm never prouder than when I get to pick my Appalachian beans and, uh, and serve them to my family. But what happened in the coal camps is that the coal companies understood that this, the people who they were hiring to work in the coal mines were in fact expert farmers and gardeners, and that they could take advantage of that. That by having them produce their own food within a structure of industrial wages, they could in fact pay them even less as they use their own labor to produce their own subsistence. It was an incredibly cynical move to take the garden, the symbol of autonomy, and to place it within a structure of wages where it served not the interest of the miners and their households, but it served the interest of the mining companies because it essentially subsidized the industrial wage. If you're producing your own food, I don't have to pay you $10 an hour. I can, produce you, I can give you $5 an hour as you basically make up the difference with your own labor in this little plot of land that I give you to use. And it turns out that goes all the way back to early capitalism in, in England. The word cottage and cottager refers to a laborer on a manor, on a large area owned by a lord, where um, someone would produce their own food and work for wages. It was the lords themselves who invented the structure. And in fact, Adam Smith even writes about it in The Wealth of Nations. So it was not a new idea. And they knew exactly what they were doing. I think that for us today, it's made me think of like guerrilla gardening and, and urban gardening, especially in Los Angeles, where there was a large area in South Central Los Angeles was called the South Central Farm in the early uh, 2000s. After the Rodney King uprising, a number of families, most of them Latinx, seized control of this large area and ended up producing an enormous amount of food in about, I don't know, like 300 different plots of land. And if you look at the way this was written about at the time, there was a lot of a lot of discomfort about it and people not understanding what they were doing. That they were reproducing a kind of peasant world where they produced an enormous amount of food for themselves outside of the market. And it drove some people crazy as they tried to come to terms with it, as they ate some and they sold some, and no one knew how to define or categorize what they were doing. When it was simply, you know barter and exchange, subsistence and market-oriented agriculture. And they were doing this, of course, not with, these were not captured gardens, they were uncaptured gardens, which is what made them so interesting. 
So we still have this dichotomy today and, and the garden as a contested space of where it's a small space that people can gain control over, take over a small piece of land that may be private property, produce food on it for themselves as is still being done in Los Angeles and elsewhere. So yeah, the, the garden was this contested uh, area. But in that example of the, the captured garden, the mining companies really did use it as a means of, of control. Because everything else that wasn't produced by the garden, people were buying from the, the company store using the little artificial monopoly money that they were given in order to, to do that. Basically being given these little pieces of money called script for their labor and then handing it right back to the company for flour and bacon and things like that. So it was part of a larger way of controlling people and labor that ultimately this big labor movement like the United Mine Workers and the IWW recoiled and helped them to fight against. And if I'm remembering correctly in, in the story in LA, you know, that is something that eventually they would be evicted by law enforcement and parts of the, that farm were bulldozed, I believe. And that actually is an eerie contemporary echo of some of the stories you tell of the miners' strikes and outright warfare at times in the Southern mountains. And a lot of it had to do with access to land and access to subsistence practices. You offer an amazing story of the Paint Creek strike in 1912, where the companies have locked out the striking miners and are threatening to shoot them if they come back. And what are they doing but organizing raids to go back to their own gardens? And in one instance, someone steals their own cow, takes it back up to the hillside so they can feed the striking miners. These, to me, just demonstrates how explosive and contested the gardens and other sites of food production could be and still are. This, to me, is one of the lessons. Subsistent practices haven't gone anywhere, captured or uncaptured, and they remain not only life-giving and affirming ways to live, but really are important political battlegrounds. I couldn't have said it better, Ryan. Um, that's absolutely right. Uh, about the South Central Farm, there was a, a, a kind of a a kind of a backroom deal between the city and the original landowner that gave him back the land so that he could evict them. Uh, and he remains the landowner to this day. And yes, as you said, they were all they were all evicted, forcibly evicted. The strike was fought over as a kind of subsistence war. The attempt uh, in the Paint Creek strike was to starve the miners by denying them access, just as you said, to the, the spaces that they actually had farmed and gardened themselves in the in the mining camps, which of course they don't, they didn't own any of the property whatsoever. That's exactly right. I do want to say about Los Angeles that the destruction of the South Central Farm set off a movement for household gardens that now has legal household gardens all over the city and the region in a profusion that came from that event. So it was actually incredibly successful in spreading gardening around the whole region. Well, Stephen, I think that goes to show that the war over subsistence continues. And I think Ramp Hollow and your work gives us some amazing historical resources 
to think through the origins of that conflict, what the stakes are, and maybe gives us some hints on where we want to take it in the future. So we thank you for your time. We're so happy you joined us today. And I know the listeners appreciate everything you've shared with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. Special thanks to Ryan and Stephen for their insights. And also thanks to Lynn Rye for our music. In upcoming episodes of Partisan Gardens, we'll hear from folks fighting food insecurity amidst the coronavirus pandemic to provide food for people, including our local food bank, a mutual aid food distro in New York, and an autonomous migrant-run kitchen. We'll also have an episode devoted to the pawpaw, hear about autonomous planting projects, and talk to striking workers in the food industry. Stay tuned. This has been Partisan Gardens. On this program, we are going to look at the world through the lens of food. We will speak directly to those with their hands in the dirt. But also to those in all sectors of the food world. To the servers and those being served. To the history of food in this country and beyond. We will focus on understanding the systemic problems in our food industry, including food scarcity and racism. We want to talk to you too. Please write us at partisangardens at wfhb.org, and we will be in touch.